Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I'm your host, Aliza Arıcan. My guest today is Osman Balkan, Associate Director of the Huntsman Program in International Studies and Business at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll be talking about his book, Dying Abroad, The Political Afterlives of Migration in Europe, published recently by Cambridge University Press. Thank you very much, Osman, for joining us today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for your invitation. Of course, the pleasure is all mine. So let's start by getting to know you. How did you arrive at political science, at ethnography, and at an ethnographic book on death and migration? Well, uh, this book started as a dissertation that I I wrote in the political science department at the University of Pennsylvania, but I think the seeds of my interest in questions around migration and citizenship, race, transnationalism, and the politics of borders and boundaries really grew out of my own uh, life experience as a second-generation immigrant uh, whose formative years were spent um, back and forth between the United States and Turkey. Uh, my parents moved here. I was born in the States, but my whole life was was back and forth. So I learned a lot about the contingencies and complexities of inclusion and belonging um, through my own efforts to navigate what it meant to be marked as an other, both in both countries where, where I grew up. So I was never fully accepted as an American or as a Turk. And I think this experience of being an insider or an outsider, uh, which is an experience that I think is common for many second generation immigrants, um, taught me a lot about the instability of categories uh, such as nation or citizen. Um, and when I first encountered the work of uh, Stuart Hall, uh, as an undergrad at, at Reed College, I, I felt as though someone had finally put words to something that I'd been uh, living personally for years. Um, Hall's work on, on diasporas, on the experience of belonging to more than one world, of being both here and there about the, uh, you know, and about the difficult questions that this creates for one sense of self and self-identification um, were really revelatory for me and have been at the core of my academic work and my scholarly research ever since. Um, Paul shows us, um, you know, so eloquently, I think, how identity is never singular, how it's 
multiply constructed across intersecting and antagonistic discourses, practices, subject positions. And, and he insists in his work that we approach uh, the question of identity not as a set of fixed attributes, but as a constantly shifting process of positioning. And, and I really like that. His approach helped me make sense of my own liminality uh, and, you know, if I can call it such, and gave me both the uh, both a language, uh, but also a, a set of theoretical and analytical frameworks for understanding uh, the social, political, cultural, and historical processes that have shaped uh, different experiences of transnational migration across the world. So uh, for me, he's remains a, a key theoretical interlocutor uh, and intellectual companion. He's an author whose work I return to over and over again and, and assign in almost all of my classes. So that was the kind of big uh, hero number one, I guess. Uh, but at, at Reed, um, I was fortunate enough to work with a, a number of great scholars like the uh, political theorist Darius Rajali, the anthropologist Paul Silverstein, and uh, Kambiz Ganea Basiri, who's a scholar of Islam. And being at a liberal arts college, you know, our academic curriculum was quite interdisciplinary. And although I majored in political science as an undergrad, I took courses in anthropology and economics and history, music, uh, comparative literature, uh, all of which was an experience that I tried to recreate uh, when I started my PhD program at Penn. Um, I'm a firm believer in interdisciplinary knowledge production and, and exchange, uh, which is actually quite achievable in a field like migration studies, uh, which brings scholars from so many different disciplines into conversation with one another. And, you know, maybe it's because of their interest in border crossing and people on the move, um, that migration scholars are, you know, on the whole, less encumbered with the disciplinary boundaries that tend to keep, you know, knowledge siloed. So um, I think I found a good home here. And at, at, at Penn, as I said, this began as a dissertation project. Um, my committee was comprised of scholars from different subfields in political science. I work with uh, comparative politics people as well as political theorists. And I was lucky that uh, they were pretty open-minded, both about the choice of topic and about my uh, methodological approach. Um, so ethnography is still, I would say, um, an underutilized uh, methodology in political science even though we have many exemplary ethnographers in our discipline, you know, people like James Scott, Lisa Widin, uh, Timothy Pachirat, uh, Wendy Perlman, just, just to name a few. Um, and several years ago, I, I co-founded uh, the American Political Science Association's Political Ethnography Working Group uh, with my friend and uh, fellow ethnographer, uh, Tani Sebro, uh, who's at Cal Poly in, in, out in Humboldt. And, you know, ethnographers have long found a home in APSA's interpretive methodologies and methods uh, section. So, so there is, uh, you know, there are people facilitating these conversations. Um, but in, in any case, um, I, I knew that I wanted to work on questions surrounding immigration, uh, citizenship and identity in Europe. And uh, having written my undergraduate thesis on Islam and secularism in Turkey and France, 
I wanted to expand my geographical horizons. So I visited Berlin for the first time on a backpacking trip through Europe in my early 20s. Uh, I was completely blown away and enchanted by uh, the neighborhood of Kreuzberg, which, as you know, is one of the epicenters of the Turkish diaspora uh, in, in Germany and has a really kind of important part, I think, in, in the imaginary of, of um, Turkish life in Berlin. And I, I don't have any family connections to Germany, so, um, you know, no, no family members who immigrated there. But I wanted to spend more time uh, learning about the experience of Turkish and Kurdish migrants in Berlin, uh, which is how I came to choose my field site. And having worked closely with you know anthropologists during um, both in grads in undergrad and, and in grad school, um, you know I already had some familiarity with ethnographic writing, and many of the formative books that I read as as a younger scholar were were, were these really rich ethnographer ethnographies of of peoples and places. So books that would literally transport the reader into a new world, and. I've always been compelled by the power of stories and oral histories and knew that I wanted to adopt an ethnographic approach in my own work, uh, an approach that would center the voices and meaning-making processes of my interlocutors and interview partners, and um, which tries to transport the reader into a world that is probably unfamiliar to them. So one of the values, I think, of ethnography lies in the ability to connect uh, micro-level experiences to macro-level structures and processes, right? Illuminating how lived experiences and the meanings that differently positioned actors attribute to them are reflexively uh, shaped by broader and more abstract structural forces. Um, and a key feature of the ethnographic approach is is listening uh, to other people. I did my best to enmesh myself into the life worlds of my interlocutors I didn't always agree with them, and they were often, you know, just as curious about me as I was about them. Um, and one of the challenges for any ethnographer is, you know, establishing trust and rapport. And you know, maybe this is easier when we recognize that, um, you know, people aren't simply out there waiting to be the objects of our study of our ethnographic gaze, but they study us back. You know, they allow us into their lives in calculated ways, but. Um, you know, in any case, I, I did make some mistakes and had some bizarre encounters in the field that I can speak to more about in a little bit. But it made uh, to me, it made sense to try to write the story of you know, transnational living and dying ethnographically, since I was quite interested in trying to understand how people managed and made sense of dying in a country where they didn't necessarily feel at home, which is what I call in the book um, Death Out of Place. Yeah, thanks so much for you know, taking us so elegantly through all these places and institutions and ways of thinking that culminated in this book. And I'm excited to talk about the weird and bizarre encounters <laughs> that happened along the way. Um, but for the moment, um, I want to talk a bit more about the term that you developed throughout the book, death out of place. Can you tell us more about this concept? And what does death out of place tell us about political membership and belonging? Right. Okay. So uh, the term death out of place is inspired uh, by my engagement with another uh, diasporic intellectual who 
uh, like Stuart Hall, has had an outsized impact on, on my own intellectual trajectory. And I'm referring here uh, to the great Edward Said, uh, who characterized his own life experience as a life lived out of place. So he wrote this book. It was a memoir. It was called Out of Place. Uh, and he writes in the book that from an early age, he has a difficulty reconciling his two selves. So Edward, which was this English name given to him in honor of the Prince of Wales, uh, always seemed disjointed from the Arabic Said. Uh, and um, he writes that, um, you know, this phrase out of place is not simply like a geographical reality, but it, it, for Said it was an existential condition. His, his loyalties, his allegiances, his very sense of self were contradictory and confusing, and he felt, as he put it, out of place. And I was really drawn to uh, his beautiful uh, account of liminality and displacement that he chronicles in this memoir. So this is one of the inspirations. And the, the second one, which will be familiar to anthropologists, of course, uh, you know, comes from the work of uh, Mary Douglas who, and, and the classic book, Purity and Danger. Um, you know, Douglas argues there uh, that every culture maintains symbolic boundaries that aim to keep categories and groupings pure, which um, give particular cultures and peoples their unique identities. So what's unsettling is when persons and things do not conform to their ascribed category or ascribed place in the category, right? What she calls uh, matter out of place. And she uses the example of dirt to work through ideas of pollution and hygiene and, and so on. Um, uh, I developed the concept of death out of place to describe a situation where people come face to face with difficult end of life questions in countries where they don't necessarily feel at home. So these people have multiple and sometimes conflicting allegiances, attachments, and loyalties to different places, uh, to different political communities. They may face barriers to inclusion in both the countries where, where they've settled in and uh, in those countries where they're uh, purportedly from or where they're told to go back to. Um, and the liminality that they experience in life is also present after death, you know, as their family members and survivors make arrangements for their funerals, they try to determine where and how the body will be buried, whether they'll be able to perform uh, religious funerary rites or culturally appropriate funerary rites, uh, whether there's even burial grounds where they can be uh, laid to rest uh, with other Muslims, let's say, whether they decide to repatriate to ancestral soils and, and so on. So there's a host of questions. Um, and there's a great, um, you know, number of such decisions that families with migratory histories have to make, which, in my view, uh, illuminates a great deal about their sense of place, including their ideas about home and homeland, about citizenship and belonging, about national and religious identity in a transnational and multicultural and multi-confessional world. And while death is undoubtedly uh, a universally shared human experience, maybe the most universally shared experience uh, other than birth, perhaps, um, you know, it poses distinct challenges for minority communities in migratory settings, right? It, foregro it foregrounds these um, deep questions that are really central to the intergenerational experience of migration. You know, who am I? Where do I belong? And the act of burial 
uh, I argue, confers a final sense of fixity to identities that are more fluid and ambivalent in life. In the book, I try to show that in situations where the boundaries of the nation and its uh, members are contested, that burial decisions are actually political acts since they are a means to assert belonging, attachment, and maybe even loyalty to a particular country, community, or place. And I illustrate how different actors, um, including states, including religious communities uh, and families, all have a vested interest in the fate of dead bodies, um, including where they go and how they're memorialized. So I try to trace the actors, networks, and institutions that facilitate, encourage, or obstruct the movement of dead bodies within and across borders to illustrate the complexity of the field within which these posthumous mobilities uh, unfold. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And my next question actually centers on posthumous mobility. So, you know, in my reading, the book really tracks the afterlives of um, of migration through careful attention to how burials are handled within the city of Berlin or to the repatriation of bodies. So there are multiple, you know, scales or forms of mobility going on. And I'm curious, how does religious difference become reinscribed by and impact posthumous mobilities? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's different factors, you know, religious different, uh, religion is one of them, but there's a, a different factors, I think, that influence burial decisions um, you know, that I try to uh, outline in the book, uh, factors such as family ties, uh, you know, the different meanings that people attribute to particular soils, uh, and also uh, feelings of social exclusion, um, you know, whether or not individuals feel discriminated against or they feel like they, they belong uh, in, in the uh, national community. Um, these I, I trace out and, and sort of outline um, in the book through through interviews. I, I try to put a lot of interview excerpts where people are explaining their different preferences, reflecting on them, reflecting on the decisions of others to try to tease out uh, the different uh, meanings and factors uh, influencing burial decisions and outcomes. Of course, there's also the kind of practical uh, dimension of this, such as, you know, uh, the laws governing dead bodies and funerary rights. Um, for example, you know, in Germany, there's a mandatory uh, 48-hour waiting period between death and burial, uh, which in practice can actually be much longer if um, the state needs to conduct an autopsy or if there's any, um, you know, uh, indication of foul play in the death, right? So that the corpse can be kept waiting. Um so, uh, but in but in Islam, uh, most Muslims believe that the the you know the dead should be buried as quickly as possible after death, which people have interpreted as essentially a twenty four hour rule, although it's not specified anywhere uh, what the actual time period should be. Most people say that you should be be buried on the same day or within twenty four hours of your death. That's because the corpse is believed to still be sentient and to feel pain um, until it's put into the the earth. So there's some, you know, conflicts between, you know, uh, funerary laws and and uh, Islamic uh, uh, beliefs. Uh, there's also the practical question. I think this is like a big question, um, and this is a way of, you know, how we can think about differences is uh, inscribed. 
um, in posthumous practices. Uh, the big issue is that there's really a, a lack of cemetery space available for Muslims to bury their dead. Uh, in Germany, the cemeteries are all publicly owned, municipally administered, and of this somewhat something like 32,000 burial grounds in Germany, uh, less than 1% have spaces uh, reserved for Muslim burials. So uh, Muslims, like uh, members of other religions, bury, you know, close to each other, right? Uh, there's, there's specific uh, requirements such as burial without a coffin, which is not always uh, possible or legally permissible in Germany, uh, burying uh, with the body facing towards Mecca, which is, uh, which is possible to align the graves in this manner. But um, the sheer lack of availability of um, you know, burial grounds for Muslims is actually a big public policy challenge, not just in Germany, but you know, across Europe. This is something that came to light, uh, especially during the coronavirus pandemic, and you know when when um, you know Muslim communities were hit by the virus. Some imams in in places like France uh, tried to come up with creative solutions when there weren't actual cemetery spaces available for Muslims, such as issuing fatwas saying that you know a Muslim could be buried in a non-Muslim burial ground, later exhumed if necessary, or in one case there was a fatwa issued by a group of imams in Lyon uh, which said that you know the COVID dead were to be considered ma- uh, martyrs and they could be buried you know, anywhere they died um, as martyrs. They weren't uh, subject to the same sort of uh, requirements for ordinary Muslims. So, um, uh, there's a way in which this, uh, you know, uh, there's these kind of practical uh, sort of um, considerations, uh, but there's also, um, you know, one of the chapters in 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 the uh, in the book is a visual ethnography. I think we we'll, might come to that a little later. A visual ethnography of the um, uh, what I call uh, Europe's Islamic deathscapes, right? So I'm trying to trace representations of personhood and identity through uh, semiotic analyses of, of tombstone, paying particular attention to visual and architectural markers of, of difference and alterity. Um, so, uh, you know, people, um, you know, b- display and perform these different attachments and identities in, in different ways. And, and religion is sort of one factor, you know, where graves are Islamized by the use of particular, uh, you know, religious language, such as the, the Fatiha inscription of the, you know, Fatiha or, um, you know, through crescent moons or even in um, tombstones shaped like mini mosques, which which was kind of a striking uh, feature of the, uh, of the cemetery landscape. So. Yeah, I love how you also show us that you know, practices or norms around death are never settled, right? They're never fixed, but constantly being mediated. And in fact, mediators of posthumous mobilities take an important part in your book. So what is at stake in the mediation of transnational or urban deathways? So... There's a number of mediators, there's a number of different actors, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, the, the goal was to try to, um, you know, illustrate and make sense of the complexity of this field of transnational death and dying. Um, so there's a number of private actors, there's a number of state actors, there's a number of civil society associations at work. So, um, 
One of the chapters in the book looks at the role of Islamic civil society associations and their funeral funds. So the Islamic funeral funds are uh, basically um, membership or, you know, organizations. Well, these are funeral funds that are administered by uh, long-standing Islamic civil, so- civil society associations in Europe. And the two that I uh, look at in, in the book, although there are many more, and it would be uh, interesting to do a sort of a deeper comparison of the different funds and, and their activities and operations and, and the kind of incentives that they provide. But the two that I look at are the two largest and, and sort of longest standing, most well-established Islamic civil society associations. One of them is called DITIB, and this is um, connected to the Turkish Ministry of Religious Affairs. So this is a a European branch of the Turkish Ministry of Religious Affairs. Um, For those who follow Turkey, this is the most important political institution that structures uh, the relationship between religion and the state. Um, oversees, you know, the training of imams in Turkey, uh, oversees the, the printing of religious textbooks and, um, you know, dictates the content of the Friday sermons at the mosques. So this is a, it's a big regulatory body that is um, mediating the relationship between uh, the Turkish state and the practice of Islam in the public sphere. Uh, they set up a European uh, office in, in the early 80s and, um, you know, alongside other activities such as the organization of Hajj pilgrimages or Eid celebrations or Quran courses or, um, you know, uh, job training or language training, these these kind of things. One of the services they offer is a, a funeral fund. And um, this is a, a fund whereby you pay an annual membership fee. Um, and if you keep paying your, your fees uh, when, you, when you die, the fund will assign a funeral company uh, to take care of all of the logistical and bureaucratic um, uh, you know, uh, steps leading up to, to burial or repatriation. Uh, so this is one of the funds I look at. The second one is connected to a group that's associated uh, with with a party called Milli Gurush in Turkey. This is a party started by uh, Nejmetin Erbakan, and it's, it's an Islamist party that's had many different lives and iterations in Turkish politics uh, over the decades. It's been sort of closed and reopened under a new name. Um, but this is a fund started by uh, followers of, of Milli Gurush called uh, Ukba, and between the two funds, they have a combined membership of about uh, 500,000 members across Europe. So their activities span, um, you know, in in at least a dozen Western European countries. I was looking uh, primarily at, at their activities in Germany, but they have branches in England, France, Sweden, Denmark, you know, wh- wherever you go, you can find these funeral funds. And, um, you know, I saw that they were you know, important actors in determining where the bodies go and what they signify. Uh, In many cases, like, you know, one of the important uh, considerations for people is always an economic consideration. How much is this going to cost, right? So um, burial in Germany is is pretty expensive. Uh, You know, it can be a few thousand euros and, and the grave lease is only for you know, at a minimum five years, maximum 20 years, it can be renewed a a couple of times before the grave is recycled. Um, But, 
you know, DTIPS fund, for example, uh, didn't cover the costs associated with local burial in, in Germany, right, or in the other countries that it operates in, uh, but it would pay the full cost of burial uh, if the individual was repatriated to Turkey, and, you know, it would also give a companion round-trip uh, airfare ticket for someone to accompany the body to its final destination. So it did provide these material incentives to incentivize repatriation. Um, there's also a kind of a moralistic language uh, used. You know, my, my uh, chapter is based on close readings of membership contracts and and sort of publici- publicity and promotional literature uh, made by the funds and some conversations with fund administrators, although I had a difficult time uh, getting through uh, in some cases. But um, there is this language of, you know, this Turkish term that you're familiar with uh, called gurbet, which doesn't have a, a clean English translation, but I think it, you know, translates as to something like, you know, exile and homesickness combined, right? And so there's this language used in the in the membership fund literature saying, you know, out of this condition of living in Gurbet, we've institutionalized this fund uh, to help our members deal with, with dying in, in this country that they don't necessarily feel at home. So looking at these different um, logics, you know, I try to argue that there is a more than material incentivization of repatriation by the funeral funds, and so that they're one of the sort of prime uh, actors in producing some kind of a, you know, um, uh, diasporic uh, engagement, diasporic nationalism, or kind of uh, maintaining affective ties to, to Turkey, right? So there's a lot at stake in cultivating uh, continued attachments to, to, to the homeland, right? And these are, through the pa- practice of repatriating bodies, I read this as one kind of important symbolic act of reaffirming, you know, um, ideas about home and the homeland. The other uh, set of actors are the undertakers. Uh, so the bulk of my ethnographic work was with uh, Muslim undertakers in Berlin. Uh, I worked as a, I worked as an undertaker. I was an apprentice to them. I shadowed them. I participated in every aspect of their day to day work, preparing bodies for local burial or repatriation, visiting the bureaucratic offices, the consular offices, delivering uh, to, um, you know, uh, coffins to the airport to be loaded on cargo or commercial flights. Um, and so I, I got to observe them in action. I got to do a sort of participant uh, observation of the work of undertaking and sat down with them for many long formal interviews, but also just kind of countless conversations on the job where I was asking questions and um, you know, trying to understand what was going on. And I view them, you know, th- this is not unique to undertaking, I think, but, you know, there's a lot of immigrant entrepreneurs that serve as cultural brokers or cultural mediators. But in in the kind of field of, of death or the bureaucracy of death, you know, the undertakers were these really important mediators between Muslim families and the state. Uh, they help guide families through the um, different, you know, legal, cultural, religious, political landscapes that structure transitions from life to death. And they help to reconcile sometimes, you know, conflicting um, or competing uh, sets of administrative or cultural norms, like what I was uh, saying earlier about the 48-hour mandatory waiting period or 
you know, a mandatory burial with a coffin rather than a shroud or these kind of things. So um, they served as mediators by, you know, offering uh, lessons about um, Muslims, Muslim citizens to the German state in the sense of through their interactions with the civil servants and the bureaucrats and all of the actors that are involved in the, um, you know, uh, bureaucracy of death, of which there are many, it's an overly bureaucratized um, um, uh, field, right? This countless, uh, you know, different paperwork that has to be uh, put in order and it all has to come in a particular order, uh, first getting the death certificate and then unregistering the individual and then going back to all these different offices. So it, it's a lot of um, running around. And so they meet uh, different civil servants and bureaucrats in the course of their work Um and I saw them as serving as mediators by dispelling and countering derogatory stereotypes about Islam and Muslims in Germany. Um, this was one aspect. The other was uh, serving as cultural mediators with Muslim families uh, whose, you know, uh, knowledge of the uh, bureaucratic order was for the undertakers a kind of reflection of their um level of integration, let's say. And so they were had this kind of pedagogical function where they were teaching lessons about the state to minority citizens, but also teaching lessons about minority citizens uh, to the state. And, you know, their own authority was premised upon their knowledge of the bureaucratic order, but I also found that they internalized certain, um, you know, logics of, you know, what we would understand is the Weberian legal rational uh, you know, hellscape maybe of, of rules and laws and regulations and red tape and paperwork and so on. So uh, they were very fascinating uh, uh, characters. And, you know, I, I, these are the, basically the institutional uh, actors, the, the funeral funds, and then the kind of private actors, uh, these Muslim uh, funeral homes. And I should say the very existence of an Islamic funeral industry in Germany is a novel consequence of migration, right? These are um, entrepreneurs who entered a field which they saw, you know, not a lot of funerary services catering to Muslims. Most of them didn't have a background in undertaking, you know, they had various jobs before that. And so um, uh, there was, you know, it's kind of a, a new new field, right, from the 90s forward, I think that, I think the first funeral home in Berlin which was called Vatan uh, Genaz. It was uh, built in 1983, uh, was established in 83. But since then, they've proliferated and um, there's a whole kind of market around Muslim funerals. Yeah, this is so fascinating. Um, and you mentioned home. So my next question is, I guess a question that um, appeared for me related to home as I read the book. So throughout your fieldwork, you follow Turks, Kurds, and Alevis who are differently positioned vis-a-vis so-called home. For example, for one of your interlocutors from Darsim, repatriation is out of question due to war and destruction, whereas for Turks, repatriation can become a sort of necropatriotism, to borrow from your words. So I'm curious about how you locate the Turkish state in death out of place, or whether you see death out of place as something that impacts Muslim migrants in Germany unevenly. Yeah, that's that's another great question. 
you know, I mentioned earlier uh, that I read these burial decisions as political acts. So, you know, where and how an individual is buried and commemorated, right? This is a, a, a political act that signifies or says something about certain values and attachments and, and beliefs. Now, uh, as you point out, uh, repatriation is not always uh, possible or plausible for certain minorities. Uh, local burial may not be possible or plausible for others. Uh, one story that came out of the field work was that, for example, um, the Alevi community, which is a religious minority in Turkey that has had a turbulent relationship with the Sunni majority, uh, a lot of these uh, conflicts, you know, are transnationalized when uh, people move across borders and, and, you know, establish communities in the diaspora. So the conflicts don't necessarily resolve themselves or go away. They just uh, move um, and, and have new forms. So one story that uh, I heard from um, two of Alevi religious leaders was that they had to essentially establish their own mortuary uh, services and uh, company, including you know their own cold storage space for a morgue. They buy their own um, uh, you know vans for transportation, establish their own undertakers because. Uh, they faced challenges by, you know, either they, they couldn't bring their bodies to, to the mosque, right, for for Friday prayer or for a funerary prayer, I mean, uh, or the undertakers may refuse uh, service outright. I, I don't know if these were apocryphal or not, but they said that part of the logic of establishing their own funerary services and their own religious centers, right, was because of this a sectarian conflict that, you know, traveled with them in, into Germany, right? So you see this reflected in in the rituals around death as well. Um, but with these questions of necropatriotism, uh, which is a concept that I try to develop in the book, uh, which speaks to the link between the, the dead body and the soil and ideas about the nation, right? I read repatriation in in one sense as a kind of fulfillment of this myth of return that accompanies a lot of migratory journeys, but is not always fulfilled in practice, this idea of a glorious homecoming after, you know, years in exile, right? Um, but this, uh, you know, this image of the glorious homecoming is often, you know, kind of a myth, right? The, 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 doesn't always the homecomings aren't always as people would expect them to let's just put it that way and um so uh what i found fascinating was that even you know some of my kurdish interlocutors right um thought that repatriation was actually a desirable situation right in the absence of a of a kurdish state right um because this would you know help to maintain the attachments uh, to, to an imaginary Kurdistan, let's say, that, that was in, in existence as a political community. But uh, one of my interlocutors, who uh, was someone who had been living in, in as a political asylee in Germany, um, who is an you know, active member in the Kurdish uh, struggle, uh, said that, you know, this isn't nationalism. You should be, you know, buried where you're born. And, and for me, you know, this means sending the body back to, to, to Kurdistan. So for him, it was the almost um, calling into being and yet imaginary political community and, and, you know, sending back the bodies as a way to sort of mark claim over that territory, right? Some of the Alevi leaders said the same thing about repatriation. They said that, you know, 
that I know my great great grandfather's grave, and when I go there, I see 250 years of history, and I don't have to ask anyone; it's there before me. And and for us Alevis, this is this kind of genealogical continuity. It's very important, right? It's part of our heritage, our tradition, our culture. And I want my children to learn about this. And so I want my body to be repatriated uh, there too, so that they can maintain an attachment to, to, to the homeland uh, and so on. For others, the idea of, you know, local burial, you know, families impact these decisions in both in like kind of a Janus faced way, right? Both forward looking and backward looking. So some people, you know, the dead body, you know, is anchored by their ancestors, I want to be close to my ancestors so we can have this genealogical continuity, family continuity, attachment to a particular place, a homeland, which is made meaningful by virtue of the dead that lay within it, right? For others, it's more kind of forward-looking. The dead are anchored by their children, right? So they say, my children are here, my grandchildren will be here. This is our home now. Um, You know, I want to be buried here so that my children have no doubt about where they belong. It's here in Germany, which is where where we've settled. So um, through these different practices, right, I I saw a a lot of these as kind of placemaking practices, claims making through, um, you know, burial practices and uh, signifying a particular attachment to a place or political community by virtue of burying your dead uh, uh, within it. So that's, those were some of the, but, but there's not, it's not always obvious which way it's going to go. Right. And so, um, I, I don't have a kind of a neat, like, uh, uh, causal argument about what is, what will happen if one is, you know, of a certain, uh, sect or minority or class or, or gender, or, you know, all these other factors which may play a role. I think it's a very personal decision, and uh, the the decision, the you know, the, the the reasons that people give me often conflict with one another, right? They they contradict one another. They're messy. Um, you know, the most obvious one is if you're going to repatriate a body, it's going to take more than 24 hours, right? So if you're a practicing Muslim, you want the body be, to be buried as soon as possible after death. But I found that a lot of people were willing to suspend this religious injunction because they felt that it was more important to get the body back to the right place, right? So death out of place, return the body right to the proper place, restoring the kind of, you know, the, the broken circle. So uh, in a lot of ways, uh, these logics come into conflict with each other. And what I try to do there is to... Um, you know, tease out the different, um, um, you know, ways that people justified, made sense of uh, these practices, uh, given their different subject positions and, and you know, positioning in, in German society. Yeah, as or a Turkish reader, society. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a reader, I really appreciated how your book really lays out this messiness, and I think it's so important to do. Um, and something that was interesting to me was how political tensions in Turkey also traveled with you during your fieldwork. And we see that come into view, especially when you mention your affiliation with the University of Pennsylvania. So <laughs> maybe we can talk a little bit about <laughs> what Pennsylvania means for Turkish or migrants from Turkey in Germany. And can you tell us about how these tensions shaped your method? Methodology. 
Sure. So I started my field work in 2013, uh, and uh, you know, first trip to, to Berlin, and the field work was conducted between 2013 and 2017. Uh, you know, 15 discontinuous months over a four-year period. Uh, in 2016, there was an attempted military coup uh, in Turkey, um, in which several hundred people uh, were killed, and uh, the aftermath of which um, was was a large uh, purge of um, suspected uh, Gülenists uh, within uh, the AKP government. Uh, so Fethullah Gülen is a exiled cleric uh, living somewhere up in the Poconos in the state of Pennsylvania. And um, he has a sort of a long and uneven history in Turkish politics, at, at one time ally of, of Erdogan, then falling out of power, then kind of suspected of being the mastermind of the military coup, uh, and suspected of basically putting his cronies, infiltrating all levels of the state, uh, from the judiciary to the police and, and so on. And so there was a real kind of internal conflict between um, followers of Erdogan and, and Gulen and the Gulenists, um, uh, uh, whose you know, activities span all sorts of different things, such as you know starting schools and and uh, religious charities and uh, interfaith dialogues and these these kind of things. So. Um, when I first got to uh, to Berlin, uh, you know, there, there wasn't kind of an open conflict period between uh, the Gulenists and the uh, followers of Erdogan. But um, um, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where Gulen resides, uh, to my you know, I, I wasn't expecting this, but uh, this is essentially like a metonym for the Gulen movement. So there was an encounter that I had earlier in, uh, you know, my early days in the field where I was, uh, you know, in, in the courtyard of a mosque trying to get an interview with the imam there who asked me about my affiliation. And when I gave him my business card, which said PhD student at the University of Pennsylvania, he was uh, pretty skeptical about my credentials and, and what I represented and um, I didn't quite get it at first, but I, I realized that he suspected some kind of affiliation with the movement because um, in the aftermath of the military coup, especially in a lot of the public messaging, um, you know, uh, Erdogan spoke about the man in Pennsylvania or, or simply he would say, Pennsylvania, I have a message for you. So Pennsylvania is the most noto notorious American state, probably uh, in, in Turkey, the most well-known and infamous state. And so, you know, that was a, a moment where I, you, you know, for reasons that would have been, maybe I could have predicted this, but it, it taught me a lesson about, you know, our own positionality as researchers. I mean, I, I, I told you a little bit about my background as a Turkish American. I wasn't as familiar with uh, Turkish diasporic life in Germany. So there's definitely a politics that preceded me. I, I knew about the various sectarian conflicts or conflicts between leftist groups in the diaspora versus more nationalist groups. Um, but I didn't anticipate that, you know, the uh, UPenn thing would be uh, a, an issue. And so uh, we all make uh, kind of early mistakes, I think, in the field that then later shape our, our uh, research trajectory. This um, 
this taught me that you know uh, there's very little that one can as- assume about how uh, we're made legible uh, by others about the kind of different markers that are going to stand out to them, uh, what aspects of our you know presumed identity will um, be you know most encouraging or or most discouraging for for them, and. Um, you know, I always try to be truthful with my uh, interlocutors to explain my intentions that this was a for a research project, for a dissertation, right, that I wasn't a journalist. A lot of people were concerned that this would be a kind of a newspaper thing with a wide readership. But I said, don't worry, like nobody's going to read this. So it's just a dissertation. <laughs> you don't have to worry about anything. But to be, to be honest about my own intentions and, and, you know, to practice a kind of uh, ethnographic sincerity. Right. Because, uh, as I mentioned, our uh, interlocutors are not just waiting for us to come and study them or something. They're always allowing us in in calculated ways. Um, and even when things go uh, unexpected, I think if, if you can um, be truthful in how you portray your aims and objectives, uh, that's the first step in winning trust. Doesn't mean everyone's going to trust you, even if you tell the truth about it all the time. But there is a climate of suspicion, especially among you know racialized or minoritized communities that are the targets of state surveillance, that are the targets of integration policies, that are that are the targets of various. Um, you know, um, carceral or coercive interventions on, 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 on behalf of the state, they're rightly suspicious that when uh, someone from the outside comes around, even if they speak the same language, if they look the same way, they have a beard, whatever, that, you know, uh, that maybe their intentions aren't, aren't forthright. So that's a big challenge for any, you know, ethno- all ethnographers out there know the, you know, difficulties of kind of entering the field, I, I guess, and establishing. Um, and so word of mouth is usually a good a, a good way, you know, what we call snowball sampling, learning uh, about the existence of others, being introduced to uh, new people through our uh, existing contacts. Um, but you never know how you're going to be uh, received and what, you know, uh, markers might work against you. So that was a really humbling moment for me, I think, in the field. It made me a little bit more um, cautious, a little bit more guarded, uh, even though I didn't modify my story. It, it was just to um, learn that the politics that preceded me could play out in really unexpected ways that would be um, you know, difficult to deal with in, in the moment. But that was a valuable lesson about um, this kind of micro-diasporic politics and all the intricacies and complexities of of doing transnational research. Of course, and thanks for sharing that with us. Um, Another aspect of your fieldwork I was curious about concerns your work as an undertaker. So, you know, you mentioned the kinds of labor that that job entails, but to my mind, you know, it also involves a strange intimacy. So you've been present in maybe some of the most you know, difficult days of some people's lives, of strangers. So I'm curious about whether emotions or intimacy figured into your methodological approach. Yeah, I I thought about this a lot and I had a lot of self-doubts about the work I was doing and whether or not, you know, this could be just considered voyeuristic or that, you know, insensitive to, to, to be, you know, in these environments as a stranger, as an outsider. 
um, the undertakers were extremely receptive and uh, open and, and, you know, in, included me uh, basically in, in, in everything and treated me as, as one of their own. And in fact, there were situations where a family member at a funeral would come up and ask me a question, right, that maybe I didn't have the answer for because I was with them and I was helping them. And so, you know, uh, they naturally thought that, you know, I was part of that team and in which case I would refer them back to, to, to the undertakers themselves. But, um, it's impossible not to, uh, uh, let the emotions um, impact you uh, in these moments. I'm, I'm actually uh, working through right now a, a methodological piece uh, around, you know, other people's grief and studying grief ethnographically, where I'm trying to uh, develop some ideas about uh, vulnerability, especially collective vulnerability, the kind of collective vulnerability that uh, arises in these moments of, of mourning and, and grief and rituals around uh, death, death and burial. Um, you know, I was participating in these uh, rituals. I was praying uh, with with the family members. I was, you know, uh, working with the undertakers and that subject object distinction, which I think is already, uh, uh, you know, an, an unhelpful uh, sort of binary becomes completely blurred in these uh, moments of collective ritual. Like this doesn't mean like going native or giving yourself up to the ecstasy of the collective frenzy, but it just means recognizing that you are um, a human being in, in a, in a situation with other human beings uh, whose uh, community is, is uh, in a moment of grief and, and suffering and is uh, going through some kind of a, a ritual that is going to maybe uh, repair or begin to address some of the wounds and maybe be a moment of healing and, and closure. And there's no doubt that it's difficult and painful. And, you know, I was overcome with, with emotion on, on several occasions. And I... Uh, didn't try to down, downplay that. I, I, I write about my own you know, experiences uh, through a series of vignettes and field notes that uh, you know open up the different chapters of, of the different books. But um, trying to have that uh, embodied uh, ethnographic uh, experience and try to convey it, right? Um, I felt that it was, um, you know, it was a difficult position to be in, uh, of, of course. I mean, I, I'm not going to say it was like uh, I could just go there and put on, you know, my I'm a rational objective observer and I'm just going to sit and watch all, all of this and just, you know, not feel anything. Maybe some people can do that, but I, I, I didn't feel as though that would be um, helpful. And so you have all kinds of methodological issues maybe that arise then about objectivity and relationality and the kind of intersubjective uh, forms of, of, of knowledge production. But, uh, you know, for me, uh, again, going back to that uh, point about rapport and trust, right? Um, I think it would have been weird had I been standing in the corner with, with a notepad just taking notes while all, all of this was happening. So, um, you know, I, I tried to, to enter those rituals uh, humble, right? Like not taking the, 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 you know, kind of following the cues of the undertakers, right? And uh, letting them guide it, but also being cognizant of the fact that I was participating as both 
um, uh, an observer of these rituals, but also as, as a participant in them, right? Taking part in the collective prayers for the deceased, for example, right? Uh, speaking with the family members, right? Trying my best to to um, to play these different roles, and um, and it was emotionally draining. You know, it's not easy to attend a, a funeral, and it was draining to write the notes up afterwards, right? And uh, they, they they would come at unexpected times. I'd get a I'd get a phone call, you know, midnight saying, "Okay, be here at you know five thirty a.m. tomorrow to go, you know, to prepare for this." So I get a call in the middle of the day. So we never really prepared, right? Um, but I try to write this in uh, these kind of reflections on my own positionality as a participant and observer in these rituals and to think through the kind of, you know, in this new piece that I'm working on, um, the, the kind of collective vulnerabilities that uh, are produced in these moments of um, public rituals of, of, of mourning and grief and how this, uh, you know, shapes our understanding and experience of the event that is, is taking place. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine how draining it can be. And I appreciate your vulnerability in sharing this with our listeners as well. Um, So, you know, I also would really love to learn more about the afterlives of the book. So I know that you just came back from a series of book talks in Europe. Was there anything that surprised you or that you enjoyed about the book's reception so far? Right. So uh, I've just gotten back from a few talks uh, and um, it's, it's been really wonderful to be able to share my work uh, with audiences in, in Europe and also with your listeners on, on this podcast. Um, I'm finding that, you know, it's been generative. The, the work has, has produced a lot of conversations and that people are very keen to try to draw comparisons to what is happening uh, locally for them. So I, I was in the UK uh, giving a talk at, at Cambridge. Um, a lot of discussion was, you know, focused around cemeteries and cemetery plots for Muslims in the UK or British Muslim undertakers or, or the kind of, you know, uh, different logics that might accompany kind of post-colonial migrations to the UK, right, versus, you know, non-colonial in the sense of Turkey and Germany, right? Um, and so I gave the, a talk in, in Paris, right, where I got to uh, connect with some uh, colleagues in France who were very interested in issues surrounding uh, North African uh, Muslim communities li- living in France and, you know, the same questions around cemeteries and undertakers. And, and lastly, I, I, I was in uh, Copenhagen. Um, and there too, I mean, I, I, I think... Um, you know, there is uh, uh, much work to be done here, and, and there are several uh, authors and some some of my co-authors who have uh, written about these different cases. But I think this is a topic that lends itself to a great um, deal of comparative uh, research. What I'm finding striking is that there's more similarities and differences in the experiences that I'm, I'm hearing about death out of place, right? I really do think there is something... Um, uh, universal about you know uh, this experience of, of dying in a country that you don't necessarily feel at home in for different migrant communities right be they uh, the subjects of empire or be they you know uh, displaced for other reasons for by be they refugees or be they 
um, border crossers for for other reasons. So I'm very curious to see, you know, uh, as as um, more people uh, hopefully learn learn about this study and and the questions that are motivating it. Uh, I'm very interested to see. Um, how different scholars are, are going to pick up and, and do their uh, studies, their own local studies, to maybe tease out some of these um, similarities and differences and how different communities, different subject positions navigate uh, these really uh, complex and, and deeply um, uh, profoundly political questions around uh, uh, death and dying. Um, so... That work is, I, I think that work is uh, yet to come. Um, one thing that I'm working on collaboratively now with some scholars uh, is, a, is a website, uh, dyingabroad.com, which it's not live yet, but there I hope to uh, uh, have a, as a repository for the images of the tombstones that I've uh, taken myself and that other researchers uh, who are interested in these transnational death ways you know, I'd like to chronicle the basically like the diversity of afterlives uh, that are present in uh, multicultural cemeteries across Western Europe and, and beyond. So uh, this is something that I've been uh, sort of speaking with colleagues on, on the tour, too. So uh, there's more to come, I hope. Wow, this is so exciting. And I personally will be looking forward to the website. Um but on the note of things to look forward to, my last question is, what is next for you? What are you currently reading, writing, thinking, or teaching about? Well, um, I have another uh, book project that I, uh, I'd like to get off the ground uh, around um, memory, uh uh, collective memory and political violence. So I, I've written a, a couple of uh, standalone pieces, um, essentially looking at you know how do uh, states deal with the bodies of the perpetrators and victims of acts of political violence and terrorism. Uh, looking at cases like uh, Charlie Hebdo uh, shootings in France or the Boston Marathon bombing or uh, the creation of the Cemetery of Traitors in Turkey following the military, failed military coup in 2016. And here I'm interested uh, especially in uh, the more kind of uh, collective acts of mourning and ritualization and uh, how states and their contenders uh, commemorate and memorialize actors, right, in different ways uh, to shore up certain ideas about the boundaries of national communities and who is included in them and what they stand for and so on. So I, I have a couple of uh, uh, case studies that I'm, I'm developing now, and I hope to um, bring this all together into a book in the next couple of years um, that's going to center more around you know, if, if we could make a, a distinction between the kind of quotidian uh, modes of, of transnational death and dying, maybe these are kind of more exceptional moments where uh, moments of political violence and terrorism, uh, which, while exceptional, are, are still sort of spectacular uh, moments or moments of spectacle where uh, different ideas about the political community and its boundaries are, are expressed and contested through these public rituals of grief, commemoration, and mourning. So I'm moving in, in sort of this direction uh, next, and there's a, you know, a lot of great scholars that have 
uh, written on these topics. So I'm in the phase of kind of reading and thinking right now. So that's that's what's going on. Fortunately, it's the summer, so I have a little bit more time to read now. <laughs> well, this is very exciting. And hopefully when you finish that book, we'll have you back on the podcast. Yes, inshallah. <laughs> inshallah, indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much, Osman, for joining us and for your insights. Okay. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this invitation. And it's been a wonderful set of questions that made me think really hard, actually, about what I was writing in the book. So thank you uh, very much to you as well, Elisa, for your for your close and thorough reading of the book. I really appreciate that. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. This is your host, Elisa Arjan. This discussion of Dying Abroad, The Political Afterlives of Migration in Europe, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.